Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. We are in Vienna and I'm wearing a rather thrilling dirndl. Um, just to make it a little bit more exciting. Uh, I'm here in a hotel. Uh, with me is uh, Scott Jones, he's at PhotoGP on, on Twitter, and Neil Morrison, at Neil Morrison 87 on Twitter, and Tony Goldsmith, at Tony Goldsmith GP on Twitter. Um, we have just come back from uh, Spielberg, uh, a little, what, maybe 150k kilometres down the road, uh, from watching the Austrian race the very first race at the austrian circuit and it was oh well no <laughs> all right the very first uh, race of the austrian circuit after its return to my after an absence of 18 years after 19 years 1997 was the last time it was here um it, it was quite it was quite it, 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 it was quite an event it was interesting fascinating cold sunny also neil what did you think? I thought it was uh, thought it was a good event, a fantastic event. Um, one of the most incredible facilities I think I've been to in terms of uh, visiting a racetrack. Free lunch. There is such a thing as a free lunch, and it's available in the media centre at Spielberg. A free breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, <laughs> if you have the credentials to yeah to attend the media centre. So yeah, it was cool. I mean, the the setting of the of the track is is wonderful. Uh, right up in the mountains, the the backdrop is sensational. Uh, the track is fast. Um, offers something a bit different i think it's the fastest track now officially on the calendar takes that mantle away from phillip island um and yeah i mean it kind of threw up some interesting results well there was a two-day test there in july just after the saxon ring uh the Ducatis dominated that test and everyone kind of arrived at the circuit expecting them to you know to clear off really um and then it was up to the rest of the field to try and uh, to try and peg them back through free practice and qualifying and we ended up having a pretty pretty good race Three, three pretty good races. I yeah. mean, it was, it was, it was really, um, it, it was well worth it. I mean, the the, yeah, the circuit is officially has ten corners, but everyone was saying basically it's seven corners. Um, but despite that, it still actually creates some some pretty good racing. Um, this, like you said, the spetting, the 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 spetting, the setting was spectacular. Um, Tony, uh, Scott. Talk about first of all, Scott. What did you What did you think of the? I mean, you've been to a fair few racetracks. What did you think of uh, of just the facilities, the track, the for, uh, opportunities for, for photography, all the rest of it? What did you notice? I thought they were all pretty good. Um, the setting was fantastic. Someone tweeted me how's it compared to Magello, and I have to say, I think I give this track the nod over Magello. It's more mountainy. The different types of trees uh, the light is nicer somehow um, I thought it was a beautiful beautiful circuit a lot of fun to work very challenging to work uh, because of some of the way that uh, some of the service roads will be going along just fine and then stop and you'll either have to turn around and backtrack or hike <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring the right footwear should have had some uh, mountaineering equipment to get through over some of the sections that I tried to Passover. I remember we had quite a bit of rain right before the weekend, uh, so a lot of the areas that weren't tarmac, I guess everywhere that wasn't tarmac, was really soggy. Um, there were some wet shoes coming back into the media center after having to try to get through some areas that weren't paved. Um, that the whole section after turn one and the mysterious turn two, no one's really sure exactly where that turn two is, but <laughs> there's no service road along there. So if you try to get from turn one up to turn three, you got a mountain goat across the a soggy hillside to get there. 
Tony, same for you. I mean, as good as Mugello. Uh, yeah, um, I have to agree with, with Scott. I, in terms of the location, uh, I would probably put it ahead of Mugello. Um, but Mugello is an easier circuit to to photograph for exactly as the reason Scott was talking about with the the service road is is a bit of a a bit of a problem, bit of a conundrum, especially if you're on feet, uh, as Scott and myself were for the weekend um, for. Friday and Saturday, it's not so bad because you can plan your day around the shuttles and get to where you you want to be. Uh, but race day, uh, Scott and I were poring over the the circuit map the night before and studying the service roads uh, to try and come up with a plan of what we were going to do for photographing the race, trying to get off the grid, and then trying to find somewhere from there that would actually provide us with a variety of, of images was a bit of a challenge, more challenging in that regard than Mugello. Um, I can understand the comparisons with Mugello because you've got the rolling hillside in the country and uh, the illustrious Jensen Beeler did ask me via Asphalt and Rubber what I thought of thought of it in comparison to Mugello. And yeah, I would agree with Scott that um, I've, the, the setting is, is more spectacular than somewhere that's already spectacular, which is quite a statement. Uh, but it's a more challenging circuit to to photograph for varying reasons other than just the service road uh, there were sections that were restricted because of the air fencing of all things was just a little too high you couldn't shoot over the top of it in certain places there were sections because it's an f1 track where there was uh, big fencing and you would have to try and shoot through the fencing or and that that presents a challenge in itself and i'm sure there'll be plenty of people who perhaps amateur photographers who will be listening to this and they'll be laughing at us because they they've spent god knows how many how many years taking photographs through through fences and they'll be saying those those uh, fancy dan professionals that is complaining about a bit of fence so um it, but it but it does present a challenge um uh, but um as long as you know what you're doing you can shoot through the fence but but on the whole, uh, it would it's gone right to the top of places that I enjoy photographing. I particularly enjoyed taking pictures a bit wider, trying to bring in all that uh, atmosphere in the background. There were so many people there as well. There was a huge crowd. You got the spectacular hillside, the the red, the big bull, <laughs> trying to bring all of that into into the pictures. So no, I, I really enjoyed it and um, look forward to going back definitely. Big Bull, that's no way to talk about David. <laughs> well, you've seen him wandering around. Um, there was obviously there was a, there were problems with the circuit. There was a lot of uh, complaints about the circuit. Just one more thing before we actually move on to the onto the racing. Uh, what was it? something which people always ask me? What's the best place to sit at a particular circuit? There were some fairly spectacular uh, seating options. There's some really good places to actually go and watch. Where was where was your favourite place to actually watch the action rather than? try and take pictures of it, Scott, and you, Tony, in a moment. Well, the, we get a unique perspective from being able to be right next to the track. And there was one spot which I mentioned to you in the media center, recommended you, that you go out there. Still haven't learned all the turn numbers, but as the riders come around right in front of the bull and the KTM uh, grandstand, they do a couple of left turns. And the second left turn, they come out and then they flip over to the right and spin the right the rear tires they go around there and they come around that left turn with quite a bit of speed and they're full on the gas and and spin up sliding around that right turn was just uh breathtaking it reminded me of the 
the back at Assen on uh, <laughs> I'm gonna mess up the Dutch name, but you know the the back the Vinschlang, whatever it is, yeah. <clears throat> when they go through there, uh, they're just you know flat out and leaned over just enough to think, holy shit, if, if something goes wrong there, it's really gonna go very very wrong, and then they just go one after another, vroom, 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 and it really gives you a, an inspiring appreciation for just how good at riding motorcycles these guys are. Yeah, um, one place I didn't actually get right up close to, to the section, but when I was photographing the race, I, I went to the outside of the first turn, and for a while I stood and watched them coming out of there and going up through what is technically turn two, and actually, when you when you stand and look at that, that is there is quite a distinctive curve there, so you could see why it would be turn two. Um, and I, I was watching from there and watching them going through that section. And at one point, I did actually go along there in one of the uh, shuttle buses, and uh, the proximity, certainly for us there to that section of track, was was like mind blowingly fast as they came through that section. And it's certainly somewhere that I'd I'd like to go back and actually see if I could get any images from that from that section of the track. But I would um, some of the some of the general spectator areas were would seem to be pushed a little back. They seem to be quite a long way from the from the from the track at some of the general areas. Uh, so for a general spectator, it would be difficult to to answer that question properly because obviously we have a different perspective and we can see it from a different place and privilege to be right up close to it. Yeah, that reminds me, Tony, that that section of turn two, when they come around and they're leaned over to the left, the Armco is right there. And that was one of those spots where every now and then we go to tracks where I really get the willies about how, from my perspective of the service road, it seems really dangerous. End of the front straight at Magello, that concrete wall is so close to the fastest spot on the Grand Prix circuit, right? I mean, the, the bikes never go faster anywhere else than they do right there at the end of the Magello circuit. And there's that concrete wall. There's just a little bit of grass in between. And Marquez had that really hairy crash there a couple of years ago. Uh, we got really lucky. And I was reminded of that. As they come through turn two, there's not very much space between the Armco. There's a little bit of grass. And then there's the track. It's... Uh, Again, really exciting to stand there and watch them go by and feel the air as they, you know, that they push as they go by. And then they're hard on the brakes coming up to braking for turn three. Um, it's also really cool to stand there and you can hear all sorts of things going on that you don't usually hear because you're so close. I mean, when they come up braking for that corner, they're right there. But that, uh, that was one of those safety spots that had me nervous. That every time I was there taking pictures, I was, I was nervous about that. Yeah, I mean, safety was a big topic of uh, uh, of conversation for the uh, for the weekend there was uh, as scott says turn two because the armco was really close uh turn four or the entrance to turn four which again was a little bit uh, a little bit like the 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 vein slung which is you know it, it sort of it weaves rather than it actually being straight i mean you know it's supposed to be a straight from turn three to, to from turn three to turn four but the, there was the last part wasn't straight and the walls were the the armco is very very close there uh, valentina rossi talks a lot about the exit of turn eight where you're mm. uh, tipping i think to uh, tipping back over uh, onto right. the right and it's that looks really tricky i mean uh, and there was lots and lots of asphalt run up runoff where a little bit of uh, gravel would have been uh, really nice to help uh, to try and help uh, slow people down there was there was certainly a lot of talk of safety wasn't there neil yeah definitely yeah i think uh, casey stoner highlighted this whenever he was uh 
he was testing there in July. Uh, he pointed to turn three, and where Scott was just talking about um, that entry, he just said that the, the tracks had barriers are far too close. And uh, and yeah, there were several sections where you thought, okay, maybe like if a guy is by himself, everything's okay. But in a kind of frenetic Moto three, Moto two kind of encounter where there's four or five guys, you know, coming trying to slipstream each other, you know, there's not really a great deal of room to, you know, to kind of maneuver either side of the either side of the track itself. Um, and then, as you say, as you mentioned, there was the uh, the kind of the, the, the tarmac runoff. I think um, one, uh, Eugene Laverty was saying on Thursday that he was really concerned about the proximity of the, the trackside barrier to the outside of turn one. Um, it's an uphill turn. It's, you know, there's a lot of potential there to get that braking wrong. And if you kind of like fall when you, you know, when you're braking in a straight line, your bike's going to go straight on. Uh, it's not going to lose any speed going through that gravel trap. And potentially, uh, you know, it's going to hit the, the air fence, maybe lift it up. And then if a rider's traveling, you know, at sufficient speed, he could follow it in there. Um, so, yeah, there's a few issues that they definitely need to look at, you know, going to going ahead to, to next year, to 2017. Um, but thankfully, um, you know, I, I know Jack Miller, obviously, wasn't able to race on Sunday because he had a, a quite a big spill at turn eight um, on, in morning warm-up. But, um, you know, other than that, it was kind of passed without incident, more or less. Yeah, I mean, there was the big crash with... Um, um, well, there were two big crashes. First of all, with Danny Pedrosa on the Friday, where he managed to put his, flip his bike onto the uh, onto the top of the armco uh, or on top of the tyre wall. That, I mean, he actually came away quite well quite well out of that. And he, he afterwards, he actually said he was glad there wasn't too much... Uh, um, gravel there because he could actually slow down a little bit on the asphalt because if you go, if you go when he was traveling at such speed that when you go into if you go straight into the gravel then what happens is well, a lot like uh, turn 11 at the Saxon ring you go into the uh, you go into the gravel and you tumble and tumble and tumble and you end up breaking uh, breaking extremities and it's just generally not bad or well sorry not good it, it is bad not good um, then there was the incident between Marquez and um, and Pedrosa of course which is exactly what you were saying turn three it's close Somewhat one one person gets the corner wrong the other person gets the corner wrong and then they end up with very little space to actually manoeuvre yeah exactly and I think um, we spoke to Marquez about this uh, on Saturday after he'd had his incident in, uh, in FP3 and he said that you know it's one of those corners where everyone just has to pay that little bit more attention um, going into because if you get the breaking wrong there's a potential to skittle you know five or six different riders there and you know potentially disastrous consequences um, so yes yeah, so we were lucky there I think it's worth saying that every rider on Thursday said they were really concerned about the rain if it was raining you know they just felt that it could be lethal you know um, because there's instances when we've kind of been in practice or raced in the rain this year um, especially if there's you know a front tire that's maybe a little bit too hard and the feeling isn't quite there you know the first touch of the of the front brake you can lose the front you know in a straight line and there's a couple of areas you know turn, breaking for turn three for example where if that was wet that could be that could be scary yeah I mean it, it looked a little bit like that on the Friday for especially for example Pedrosa's crash um, it was in fact it reminded me so much of uh, Phillip Island um, the, the 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 crashes they were having there where when the the first year that Bridgeton bought the what do you call it the asymmetric front uh, where it was just breaking in a straight line first touch of the front brake even though the bike the, the the bike is still sort of perpendicular to the ground straight up and down uh, the front just go just flips it just it just totally wipes out and lets you go at least when it's dry because it was dry 
Pedrosa was sliding, but he was not sliding an awful long way. But if it had been wet, he, he just wouldn't have lost any screw, uh, any speed. Exactly, yeah. That, that's definitely a, a problem point. And we spoke to Mike Webb on Sunday evening, uh, race director, and he was saying that, um, you know, a lot of what they do ahead of next year will depend on the safety commission meeting in Brno uh, this Friday. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that they know they have to change is, is turn nine, you know, put a little bit of gravel there. You said they, they didn't intend to, you know, put gravel over the whole of the tarmac runoff, but just a little bit. If there was an occasion, like you said, where it was wet, uh, they would be able to scrub off speed. And then at turn one, I think as well, he said that they plan to maybe put some gravel along the, the tarmac runoff there. So it'll be interesting to see what the riders talk about on Friday uh, after Brno race weekend and see, you know, whether they are pushing for any more severe changes. The interesting thing, which Mike also said, was that there is uh, the good thing about the facility obviously is the Red Bull ring Red Bull has got more money than God um, they can af actually afford to make the changes and also the because the attendance were Tony mentioned the crowds it was an amazing attendance and 95,000 they said obviously you know it's not going to be 95,000 for the next couple of years it will uh, the, the first year is always the best year um, it, it will drop down but you know even even if it drops down to 70 80,000 that's still a, a lot of people and it's a lot more than 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 the than the F1 races have there yeah yeah so at least the money's there to actually make track changes next time next time we come here mm, absolutely and i think they said i think someone said to me on, on sunday that uh, over the three days the attendance was higher than the three days of the saxon ring and you know the saxon ring pulls in, pulls in a considerable crowd so that's, that's some going for the first run in yeah, this exactly. event. I, I i certainly um i mean it's always a lot easier coming in on a, coming in on a motorbike, but I was surprised at how much uh, how much traffic there was on uh, on the Friday, even even on the Friday. Uh, Tony, you were coming in from quite a long way from uh, uh, from cl close to grass. I mean, were you getting up at ridiculous times in the morning to be able to beat the traffic? Uh, yes, um, we were leaving our hotel about six thirty every morning um, to to get in for just before ten ten. Ten, just before ten to eight <laughs> was what I was trying to say. Um, I, and uh, we did have a, a problem with our journey time because one of the sections of motorway was was closed, so it added an extra fifteen minutes onto our already hour long journey. So that that was a little frustrating, but uh, you know we got used to it and we did that. And hopefully next year we'll try and find some, some accommodation that is a little bit closer. Uh, but the race day was a bit of a problem for me getting into the track. I'd tried to go into the same uh, motorway exit as I'd been using every day. And for whatever reason, they wouldn't let me through that day. I had to go another 10 kilometers down down the road. And then it ended up taking me two hours to get in where it would be normally taking like an hour and, and 10 minutes. And I think Scott commented that he was getting a bit worried because <laughs> I left probably as 10 minutes after him. And... Uh, turned up at just just warm up Woto 2 warm up was starting I think when I finally arrived at the track looking a little bit pissed off as well I think uh, what term did you use a minute ago the fancy Dan photographer rolls in <laughs> right before <laughs> I, I felt like I should have got all your equipment ready for you to go so you could just walk in <laughs> swoop it up and go out and make the magic happen sorry about that maybe I need to get an assistant to make sure that that happens in future don't I <laughs> Yeah, that's again. Like I said, the advantage of coming in on a motorbike. But it, it's funny because I took I took three different, or well, because obviously you come in four different uh, four different days, and I took four different routes uh, because the police kept on ch uh, closing off different bits and pieces. But then again, the advantage of coming past a motorbike, uh, coming on a motorbike.
like is that uh, traffic jams don't really exist. You sort of, oh, you know, that's the other side of the road and there's no one there most of the time, so it should be good. Um, anyway, back to the racing. It, fortunately, we didn't have any serious accidents beyond the normal sort of serious uh, serious incidents which, which, which we have at every racetrack. Um, what we did have was some pretty good racing and the or the Ducatis, the gap to the Ducatis, uh, certainly the Yamahas and even the Suzukis um, really, really closed, uh, closed it down. Yeah, I think you know, it wasn't it wasn't what you would call a great race, but I think for about twenty laps you had a really exciting, interesting, intriguing sort of race uh, on Sunday. Um, you know, looking at I think Friday afternoon, then Saturday morning, the Ducatis were just you know on another planet. Um, they had at least half a second in hand over the rest of the field, and you were, everyone you spoke to the riders, and they were all talking about how much of an advantage they had. They just had so much top speed; uh, they were so good at getting out of those low gear corners. Um, yeah, exactly. To me, the biggest advantage which which the Ducatis had was just acceleration yeah. because you really saw it. You, the, the, the bikes almost finished in order of acceleration, so you had the Ducatis first, then the Yamahas, then uh, the, the Suzuki and the Honda. Um, it mm. was really it just about you know grip out of corners that really yeah. it really was and and the the Ducatis were just outstanding yeah and you speak to a couple of riders and they you know I think the general opinion is the Ducati is the best uh, the best sorted bike in terms of electronics um, and you could just see coming out of turn one like you know, the two Andreas would just, you know, give it a handful of throttle and you wouldn't see any wheelie whatsoever. It would just, you know, power forward and, you know, they weren't kind of like fighting or climbing all over the front of the bike to, you know, to keep it in line. It was just, it seemed, you know, rooted to the ground almost. And that was quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the And it really is down to the winglets because I've spoken to someone who has uh, seen the data from tests, um, from back-to-back -back tests with the Ducati, both with and without the winglets. And they told me you can actually see a physical effect in the uh, in the data that the front wheel, uh, the, you know, the, the riders can apply more power, there's more acceleration, and the, and the front wheel stays closer to the ground. So that's that really is a big difference. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens next year when Ducati don't have winglets, but um, uh, the aerodynamics genie is out of the bottle, and so uh, they will find a way. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was impressive. I thought, um, you know, he's been he's been criticised all year. He's made some really rash and stupid decisions. Uh, but it was quite difficult not to be impressed with Andre and only at the, uh, you know, just everything about his Sunday um, about how he managed the race. He didn't get flustered whenever there was a couple of guys around him on the track. Um, you know, he had the conviction to go with his instinct and to choose the the medium. Michelin rear tire, which is the softer option available to the riders, and uh, yeah, he was he was fantastic at the end of the race. I think he posted uh, his final lap was within a, a hundredth of a second of the fast lap of the race, which was which was his lap. Yeah. Um, and you know, Davizioso was there on his tail the whole way, but he didn't crack, and it was uh, it was a solid solid piece of riding. Yeah, and uh, the pass he did on uh, Dovizioso to actually the actually uh, pass which he did to win was absolutely astonishing. It was absolutely right on the very very limit of grip. He came through 
held it together, got in front, and then just uh, put on just an amazing piece of pace. I was just going to add that um, if if he's going to win more races in the future, he might need to work on his podium celebrations because they were a bit muted and a bit disappointing. Yeah, remind us, Tony, what were what just, were the celebrations? Just, just from a photographer's perspective, uh, there wasn't a great deal of champagne getting uh, sprayed around. He was dis- he was trying to stop Lorenzo pouring champagne all over him, and then he did a quick wave and walk off. So he needs to uh, milk that a little bit more in the future, I think, if he's going to win more races. On the other hand, it is a, a terrible waste of perfectly drinkable um, uh, uh, <laughs> Spanish carver to be uh, to be spraying it all over people. Exactly. Uh, like, I, I'm fairly sure that Freshenet would be perfectly happy to provide an, uh, another bottle should they so uh, should they so want. And even I couldn't drink an entire <laughs> those big bottles they give. Uh, not an entire bottle. That would be a little bit too much of a good thing. Yeah, I did see a photo of him uh, boarding a private jet to uh, Ibiza on Sunday evening, so he might disagree that his celebrations were too muted, uh, Tony. Um, I would uh, I would be intrigued to see if there's any photos of him in uh, San Antonio turning up in the Italian tabloid press this now, week. I'm sure those celebrations were very much unmuted, but I'm talking about okay. the podium okay. celebrations. Fair enough. I didn't get to see him dancing the night away in a private jet on his way to Ibiza, I have to say. And I'm rather glad of that as well. Right, so Ducati's first win since 2010, the first one, one, uh, you know, one two since 2007. Um, Stoner and Capirossi at Phillip Island. Um, it was obviously a really big thing. We spoke to Gigi Delinia after the uh, after the race, and he he. He looked content more than anything, I think, which is the real surprise. Yeah, there was there wasn't this sort of like euphoric outpouring of emotion that you would maybe expect, you know, of a guy that's just won his first MotoGP race with the factory um, since he joined in 2014, I think, or the end of 2013, was it? The end of 2013. Yeah, um, yeah there was more just a, a sort of like a clinical... Uh, acceptance of you know this is just the first step in what is going to be Ducati's quest to win the MotoGP World Championship um, yeah and uh, yeah he was obviously very pleased um, but he kind of told us that you know this is just confirmation that yes the bike is very good something that he be- he's believed you know all year um, and yeah this is you know this is the first step you know there's hopefully going to be many more steps in his eyes perhaps that's the the professional in him when uh, when you were talking to my managed to find myself in front of the Ducati garage at the end of the race and uh, there were wasn't many dry eyes in the in the in the pit box uh, when the the two Andreas went over the line uh, obviously they were set not only celebrating a victory but they were celebrating a one two and uh, there was a lot of very emotional looking uh, Italian gentlemen in there at that moment in time yeah I, well I've been following Ducati for a, a long time I mean I first started covering this full time in 2009 and so you sort of saw they got used to winning with Casey. 2010, they had a really, really bad. They had, they had a tough year with Casey Stoner. Casey Stoner didn't really win until the end of the until the end of the year, until they actually raised the back of the bike up enough for him to put some weight on the front. Um, then he left, and there was nothing. Uh, and then they completely changed. The, they got taken over by Audi. Completely changed the the company around. Gigi Delinia came in, completely changed the actual the actual internal organisation, which to me is absolutely the re- the reason they're winning is because of the organisational changes which uh, uh, Delinia made. 
into the organisation, actually getting all of the, getting the test team talking to the factory and the factory talking to the race team, everyone swapping data, everyone swapping engineers. Um, there's much, much more communication there. And so you can really see it in the development of the bike. The bike is just uh, so much better. There's no, there's no longer um, an engine department which hands an engine to the chassis department which tried to fit the uh, the engine into the chassis which they uh, fitted it's now they now have a motorcycle racing department where they build racing motorcycles rather than uh, collect a bunch of parts and and, and put them together but uh, again the linear what was interesting to me was they said you know this was uh, what you said neil this is one step the goal is a world championship i think when the linear when when ducati and you've got to think that they will at some point win a world championship. When they win a world championship, then they will feel, uh, then Delaney will feel vindicated, will feel, you know, Ducati have achieved the goal. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, uh, obviously, Iannone, I mean, they're getting rid of Iannone and keeping Dovizioso. So were you surprised to see Iannone win rather than Dovizioso? Because Dovizioso looks really strong all race. He did. He looked really strong throughout the weekend. And I think listening to him on Saturday after the after qualifying, okay, he qualified third. Um, but we wouldn't necessarily say that he's a, you know, on a balls out lap he's faster than Iannone but you kind of would expect him to be a bit more intelligent in his kind of race craft than Iannone um, so yeah so it was a little surprise he, you know on Saturday night he was saying that his pace is really really strong he was really confident um, and in the end uh, yeah he was a little stronger in the brakes um, than Iannone he said after the race but it was that tyre he just didn't have enough edge grip to, to kind of get out of the turns and, and really you know mount the challenge to, uh, on his teammates yeah I think what it I enjoyed most about the, the about the win was the fact that Ian only gambled on doing something different. Mm. So often, what it happens with tire choice is uh, everyone sits on the grid looking at each other. They finally have to take their tire warmers off. Someone will spot someone's gone with the other tire, and they all switch over to uh, Oh, Marquez is on the hard <laughs> right. Boom, that's it. And all of a sudden, the uh, uh, all of the mechanics again completely mental, trying to slot the other tire in all uh, all of the time. Um, which is a it, it's a very conservative thing to do because you know at least you're not at least you know that you can't blame the tire. Um, yeah, and Gigi, you know, he was saying that after qualifying on Saturday that they felt that the softer tire was definitely the, the the tire for the race. But just to be sure, they tested the the harder option on Sunday morning and morning warm up, and you know had great pace with that, and that kind of threw a little bit of you know doubt into the mind of Davizioso clearly. Um, and I think we were well, I was speaking to someone from Mitchell on a Sunday evening, and they said that Ian and his team were really adamant that the harder option was the tire to go for in the race it was Ian Oney that was like no uh, I believe that this is the way to go and yeah. you have to you have to kind of admire that when you've got a team of engineers around you and there's a lot of pressure there I mean yeah. you know he's been in a situation a few times I think we could say this year maybe not in a place of such um, dominance uh, over a race weekend but you know there's you, know, you could say Mugello Qatar Le Mans um, even Assen I guess you know okay he was starting from the back of the grid that weekend but you know each of those race weekends he had the pace to probably win um, and he didn't and it was used through uh, you know a mistake or you know something on his part that you could kind of point the finger of blame so there was a lot riding on this and and for him to have that conviction i thought was, was quite admirable yeah but also the, i mean the thing is he was absolutely convinced that he needed the soft tire to win 
Uh, and so whether the soft tyre was faster or not, then he needed the soft tyre to win just because he believed that he needed the soft tyre to win. Um, which, again, I always find it fascinating, the, 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 the mental aspect. If you, believe, if you believe your bike is not good enough, then your bike is never good enough, no matter how good, by, how good your bike is. Um, and if you believe that uh, you, know, you need something to win and you use it, it's the, basically the, 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 the soft tyre were Andrea, Andrea Iannone's lucky underpants and they turned out to be very lucky indeed. So uh, anyway, behind so Ducati. I mean, I think I think we're all pleased that uh, Ducati won a race. If you, uh, Scott, you must have shot a few Ducati victories in the past. A couple here and there. I was really, really pleased to find uh, to be there that weekend to see the first non-alien dry race victory in however many years. Uh, to see Ducati back on the top step after so many years since Casey won 2010. Thank you, I was going to say that. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was a really special weekend to be there to see that. And I was, uh, frankly, really surprised that it happened. Uh, before the race, you know, when it got off uh, after a couple of laps, I was going around. I actually did get on a scooter uh, on Sunday because Cormac came by, he blacked the scooter somehow, and I jumped on the back, so I rode around with Cormac, and uh, on lap four or five or something, we were up at the top between turn three and turn four, and Iannone was leading, and I said, hey, do you want to bet on Iannone? Because I'll bet against him. <laughs> and Cormac wouldn't take the bet. <laughs> and I said, how about Dovey? You want to bet on Dovey? I'll bet against him. No. I, for as the race went on, I was telling myself that Lorenzo was going to win because I thought that the two Ducatis would find a way somehow to bollocks it up and hand it to whoever was in third place. Down to the final turn, I thought, okay, they're running out of time. If they're going to lose this race, they've only got a couple of corners left. And that was part of the reason why Cormac and I went to the final turn uh, with a couple laps to go so that we would be there to get pictures of it if that's where it happened and when the two Ducatis went through with no problem I almost forgot to take pictures of it I was that astounded but still uh, in spite of my cynicism and uh, ill nature I was really pleased to to see it happen I think the, th the first point I want to uh, address here is the fact that you were uh, at some point had a scooter <laughs> because I was I was a horrible sweaty mess trying to walk around that track even though I'd I, I can see you're going to say something disparaging against my horribleness here Scott so <laughs> but uh, no I must admit I'm in the early stages of the race when um, we had everybody the top six who were all running together uh, I, I did think at some point the Yamahas were going to manage to get out in front and with their with their experience uh, were going to manage against the odds because they're all, obviously all weekend the the two Ducatis were were the fastest all weekend um, right up until obviously qualifying where Lorenzo and and Rossi found something in in qualifying uh, but it was just nice to see that they they they, they were able to bring it home and uh, get Ducati their first victory since 2010 and it was good to be there and see it and I was quite fortunate that I as I said before that I found myself in front of the 
Ducati garage. I say fortunate. I, I get back with a couple of laps to go, and I deliberately headed her down in that direction. But uh, it was nice to be there and, and see the the outpouring of emotion from from everybody uh, there when uh, when they went over the line. I mean, Scott made a very good point about that. Um, I think up in the press room, we thought that Lorenzo was going to win as well because uh, this was the old Jorge Lorenzo again, wasn't it, Neil? Yeah, it was. It definitely was. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was definitely. Uh, I don't know, uh, Qatar or Le Mans, uh, Lorenzo, rather than uh, you know what we had seen in in Germany and in, in Essen. Um, you know, and frankly, for the sake of the championship, I think it's you know it, it was a good thing that Jorge kind of found his mojo again on Saturday and then Sunday. Um, yeah, and I thought he rode superbly. Um, you know, it was going to take something extra extraordinary um, for him to to, to triumph against Ducati um, but he gave it his best shot and I think you know psychologically you know yeah okay he only gained I think five points back on Marquez in the in the world championship but I think psychologically this was massive um, not only did he challenge the Ducatis but I think he was he outpaced Rossi and that was the first time he had done that in the dry since Le Mans um, and you know obviously these kind of little psychological things are huge and we spoke to him after the press conference and, uh, you know, he was, you know, he was like a boxer. He's really pumped up and he was standing, you know, he did his debrief in Spanish first and usually that's it. You don't really get a chance to speak to him in, in English after if he's at a press conference, but he was happy to sit and talk and he was talking a thousand words a second. You know, he was, you could tell the adrenaline was still running um, and that belief came back. So, yeah, I thought it was, um, it was, it was a really, really strong performance from Lorenzo and, you know, maybe we're just a little premature and kind of writing off his, his chances in the rest of the year. I don't know. Yeah, you said he had a little bit of swagger. I think he definitely had a little bit of swagger when he was talking to us. And talking about podium celebrations, I've never seen him so happy to finish third. I mean, the way he wrapped up Iannone was spraying champagne in his face. Um, and he got up there and he was almost, I was afraid that he was going to do that ridiculous jump off the third place step. He was so excited. I was just going to say the same thing. I think we we found ourselves next to each other whilst uh, shooting the podium. And uh, we were talking about it at the time, just seeing how pleased Lorenzo appeared to be finishing third in that race. And I think come on Friday, if you'd have told him he was going to finish on the podium, he'd have bitten your hand off at that. Yeah, which is interesting because, um, you know, one of the questions we asked him was, you know, where does the speed come from? What, you know, what? made the difference and he said that it was just the the circumstances it wasn't anything different with him it was just the fact that the weather was different um you know friday i think he was he was quite far back you know he was struggling a bit his lower top 10 positions um and then he said it was just you know the temperatures were higher and with the higher temperatures he had that feeling back with the Michelin front and that was it you know and once he had that again he could start working on his on his pace on his consistency and uh yeah, that was there was no kind of magical formula. Formula it was just um, yeah, the the temperatures were there. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's absolutely crucial this year because the um, uh, Michelin's. Um, this has always been true of Michelin's. Um, the Michelin's are much more tire, uh, temperature sensitive than than Bridgestone. I mean, they're much better than they used to be in the past. But even then, the Bridgestones used to have uh, a very very large. Uh, working range working temperature range um, so they would be good you know from between if, if, they did, if it was sort of you know 10, 12 
10, 12 degrees, maybe 15 degrees, they'd work okay. Or, but if it's 25, 30, 35 degrees, they'd work uh, uh, pretty good too. Whereas the missions are much more are much more sensitive. Again, we saw really surprisingly cold temperatures on, uh, on Friday and Lorenzo really struggled just because he didn't have that feeling on the edge of the tyre, which he needs to be able to carry the corner speed. Um, uh, I remember when Cal Crutchlow was on the Yamaha, he always said about uh, Lorenzo, I, the only time that I reached that uh, lean angle is just before I crash. And I think the reason that Lorenzo can actually carry that lean angle is because he can feel he has that sensitivity on the edge of the tyre, but he needs that, he needs that tire to react so and that means the tire has to be absolutely sort of right in the sweet spot of its working area and when you narrow the temperature range then it really it uh, i think it's really really restricted um uh restricted lorenzo but i remember um, a motor gp crew chief talking to me about the difference between the bridgestones and the michelins what michelin used to do was um bring five different tires and uh, which all worked within a, within a five degree window and you would spend uh, the, the first day um, uh, messing around with your um uh playing around trying to get one of them to work try, trying to figure out which one is going to be was, was going to work within the window whereas the bridgestones they brought t three tires each with a 15 degree uh, uh window and so you had uh, you always had a choice of two which were always going to be there or very you know there or thereabouts and they had slightly less performance but they, they it was slightly less performance over a much greater range so you so you know you, you always had a safety thing i think this is going to be one of the big problems for the rest of this year also well for the rest of the michelin uh, era perhaps for certainly for lorenzo yeah for sure yeah exactly and i think he was asked by someone on on sunday evening what um, you know how he could prepare for future runs where perhaps the the temperatures aren't to his liking. Um, you know, and he said like, well, you know, it's it's easy to say like oh, I can change my style, but really it's like um, getting someone like Lionel Messi to play, ask him to play, you know, as a goalkeeper or as a central defender. You know, obviously you're taking someone out of their comfort zone and asking them to do something completely different, and you know, it's just not quite he's just not built to, to kind of deal with that so yeah there's definitely a, a caveat in there because I think you maybe said to him that we're going to some tracks where you know we're not guaranteed to be always in that sort of working temperature of 20 you know high teens 20 30 degrees um, you know Silverstone for one uh, for example that's always a lottery in terms of the weather Aragon, Aragon in Aragon. the mornings, um, yeah, uh, sure. even Misano sometimes in the mornings can be very cold. Yeah, sure. But I was looking back through like Lorenzo's kind of, you know, his numbers in the last couple of years. And from 2012, if you look at the second half of the season and from 2012, 13, 14, 15, those four seasons, there was nine races obviously in the second half. Lorenzo only finished off the podium on four occasions. Um, two of those were last year when, you know, at Silverstone and Misano where, you know, kind of, he was fighting for the championship. Circumstances and also yeah. just really Real, yeah. really strange circumstances. Yeah, sure. Pouring Rennie Silverstone yeah. and then weird flag to flag. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, yeah, he could have won both of those races easily. You know, you well, if it was dry, you would have said he could have won both of those races. Then I think uh, the other one was fourteen, last race of the year. He gambled. It was a flag to flag race at Valencia. And he kind of gambled to to come in because he had nothing to lose. He was fighting Rossi for second place in the championship. And then there was also two thousand and twelve where he had already won the championship and he went to Valencia and he had that big crash, that big high side. That's got Siglin to Siglin uh, to my right. Um, so, you know, so you could say that feasibly, uh, yeah, he's, 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 when he comes back from this, I don't know what it is he does, but he's able to go away, clear his head and come back with, you know, 
unbelievable kind of steely focus. And it's almost as if the sort of the intensity, the high intensity of the second half of the year, where it is like race weekend after race weekend, and he doesn't have too much time to think on things, that he's able to build up that momentum and kind of take things forward. And that should be quite interesting for, for the second part of this year. Eight races, 43 point advantages, uh, advantage over uh, uh, or well disadvantage to Marquez Marquez leads by by, by 43 points um, all Marquez has to do is come second in the, uh, for, for the other eight races Can could Lorenzo still do it um, Rossi 57 points down could he still do it uh, I think, yeah, I think, you know, Lorenzo could do it. Rossi, in my eyes, is too far behind because he's not just dealing with one rider, he's dealing with two two incredible riders. And it's unlikely that both of them are going to have an absolute mare of the second half of the year. Um, Lorenzo, could he do it? I mean, you know, he could. I don't think he will, but I think there's a chance. You go, you look at the next track that's coming up, Berno, each Honda rider said that they expect to struggle there. Um, Yamaha, Lorenzo was fantastic at Bernal. The Ducati is going to be really strong because they have that speed going up horsepower hill. Um, you know, Honda have a bad day there. Marquez, who knows, gets a bit flustered or whatever. You know, if it's feasible. It's feasible that, um, you know, that we could be going into the flyaways where Lorenzo's within, you know, 20 points and then anything can happen. So, yeah. So I think he can. I think he can. But I, I would still, if I was, you know, land on money on it, I would, I would uh, put my money on Marquez. Yeah, I was just going to, all I was going to say was that I put my hat on Marquez about two or three races ago on our private WhatsApp group. Uh, I got some disparaging comments, but uh, our friend our friend and colleague uh, Simon Patterson agreed as well, so um, I'm going to stick with that. Right, but behind, I mean, speaking of Valentino Rossi, um, he tried, he had a really good run, but he just couldn't, basically couldn't break, uh, didn't have the advantage in breaking to get past Lorenzo. Yeah, it was it was quite similar to Qatar, really, where he was there and he was on the tail of the person in front of him, but he just wasn't quite able to make that move. And we saw, I think, going into turn three, uh, early on in the race, uh, he made a couple of mistakes going in there, you know, and he was trying to overtake someone and just got his braking all wrong and went really wide. And it was almost as if he thought then, like, okay, I just, you know, I'm at my limit. And if I go beyond that, I'm just going to make a big mistake and lose a lot of time. Yeah, there were a couple of times where he actually passed people, but every time he passed people, I mean, you know, spectacularly on the brakes, but properly yeah. spectacularly, sailing off into the distance, running really, really wide, yeah. and then losing, quite often losing a place instead of uh, actually gaining uh, gaining the place which he was after. So um, I think after... He did seem very disappointed because someone asked him about, you know, look, you've got so you've got points back on Marcus. Does this put you back in the championship? And he said something like, "Yeah, well, I've got two points back. If the if the championship is a, is a hundred races, then I think I might have a chance." Um, which was um, funny, but uh, also I think gave his in, uh, an indication of what he thinks his championship was about. But then again, he's had three DNFs. Um, uh, I. Th- I think Lorenzo had two DNFs. Marquez has had zero, zero, zero DNFs. Uh, and when he could have had a DNF at Le Mans, he still managed to get back on uh, back on track, uh, finish the race and score a couple of points. So uh, uh, that is, to me, certainly, I think, the uh, the story of this, of this season so far. Mm, absolutely. Speaking of Marquez... Speaking of Marquez, that's right. Yeah, even when he finishes fifth, it's never a dull weekend with this with this gentleman, is it? He's uh, <laughs> he's uh, you know a, yeah. I mean, it was just uh, I think there was one point over the weekend where we genuinely thought, okay, let's start up that sort of uh, championship klaxon again, you know, and start firing it over the hills because uh, you know, he was lying in the gravel trap on Saturday morning, holding his shoulder, looked like 
it looked like it was uh, it was really serious but um yeah he was actually because he was flown to the uh Leoban, which is a, a town nearby flown to a hospital uh, for further scans to actually check uh, he i think he had a check on two different uh, well on two shoulders uh his left shoulder popped out um, but he popped it back on again, or it, it, I think it went it, in by itself. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right on the back of a scooter. That's what scooters are good for. That's why you know. That's why they keep the service roads bumpy, so that uh, when <laughs> Marquez is on a scooter on the way back, it'll uh, it'll it'll pop back in again. I totally forgot that happened to me on the back of Cormac's scooter. What? We hit this big bump. My shoulder popped out, and then the next bump it popped back in. It's, it was remarkable. Are you, <laughs> are you actually related to Mark Marquez, Scott Jones? <laughs> Just Only or just spirit. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably falling off a bicycle a few times that uh, they must have done that. Yeah, exactly. But uh, exactly, it, um, you know, it, it popped back in again. But he was actually much more concerned about his uh, uh, about his uh, his right, right shoulder because he fell quite heavily on his right shoulder. Um, there were there were also a few concerns that he might have taken a bang to the head, but um, there was no signs of that at all. So yeah, it it, it really looked like he could have been giving away a lot of points yeah exactly and you know to give away five points around this you know a, a track that really didn't suit honda at all um in the end wasn't such a bad weekend you know you could still see he was really ang well not angry but you know frustrated on sunday night because you know mark marquez finished in fifth he's never going to be content with that but um but from what he was saying throughout the weekend i think he was losing somewhere in the region of 0 0.3 uh, three and a half tenths from the run on the run up the hill to turn three from turn one you know just the acceleration just you know getting absolutely slated basically um you know and the other hondas were in a similar position obviously him and pedroza didn't test um at spielberg on moto gp bikes in July, unlike you know the, his rivals, um, so they kind of came to the weekend on the back foot, and I think just on paper it was never it was never going to be one of their strongest uh, circuits. And and the layout of the track really punished the Honda because there was a lot of um, hard acceleration from low gear corners, yeah, uh, which is exactly where the Hondas are really really struggling. Yeah, we saw Le Mans this year. You know that was probably their you know their worst weekend of the year, and that's you know that is just all accelerating out of low gears, out of low gear corners, um, and yeah, it was it was tough tough going for all of them. Yeah, um, again, it, it's strange seeing Mark Marquez finish um, fifth because he doesn't normally do that. I think his worst f dry race finish since two thousand Qatar last year. Ka yeah, uh, yeah, but Qatar last year he <laughs> nope. you know he had the strange incident sure. where he just basically didn't get the thing stopped. The, the, the bike wasn't yeah. stopping as he went into turn one. Yeah, but so and this was a normal race, so this would have been perhaps since his rookie year and perhaps. Yeah, no, he's never, he's like, if you take out, like, you know, a sort of off-track incident or a crash, he's never finished this low in MotoGP. Yeah, exactly. And this, I mean, uh, to me, that seems to be the difference between, um, or, or the reason he's leading the championship, because he, what he learned last year was that, you know, I can try and win the race, but if I keep on trying to win the race and chuck it up the road, then uh, then I'm never going to be champion. Then all that happens is I get a bunch of zeros. And I think he went back, especially towards in the second half of the season, uh calculated in sort of you know all right 16 uh, 16 points here for a third 13 points there for a fourth mm. blimey that's it, it, you know i'm not 80 points down all of a sudden i'm 25 and it, it, and it's a completely different it's a completely different situation so uh, really a really really mature mature ride yeah exactly you know and 
you know, he was kept honest. He wasn't allowed to relax really at any point during that the second half of that race. You know, Vinales was kind of on his case. Vinales was struggling with his own issues. Um, oh, the same thing, same lack thing, of acceleration. Lack of acceleration, lack of grip. You know, when it first kind of touched the throttle, that, you know, whenever temperatures go up, um, that's just really hindered the Suzuki all year. Um, but yeah, Mark, you know, wasn't able to, you know, he wasn't able to relax, let's say. Um, and he was still able to, you know, kind of have the peace of mind not to do something silly. Um, right, well, we shall take a quick break, and when we come back, we shall talk about the jump starts, because there were a lot of them. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. Right. Well, welcome back. Um, jump starts. That was. It, it seemed like everyone was very keen to make a start at this race. Yeah, there were five. I think five jump starts, um, and I think Crutchlow was the the highest placed on the grid. Uh, yeah, so hard I phrase this in English. The <laughs> it's the rider that was highest placed on the grid to make a jump start. There we go. Um, and there was maybe an element of him, you know, riders, you know, looking at the person right in front of them. Um, a bit like Moto2 at uh, Qatar. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And they see one guy go and it's like, oh, I better go now as well. Um, and yeah, I think the two Aprilias, Hernandez and Barbara, I think, were the other guys to do that. Um, yeah, but then we find out, well, you find out, David, afterwards that uh, there had been a bit of a... There were some garbled messages on the uh, on the uh, dashboards because the uh, I think since last year um, it's been possible for uh, race direction to actually send messages to the dashboards of the bikes um, with a uh, you know red flag, yellow flag, uh, uh, ride through. Um, uh, just to, 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 as a as a rider aid or uh, as a rider assistant to let them know, and uh, and it turned out that um, those messages both got they got garbled both for Hector Barbara and for Stefan Bradl, um, which is why Barbara ended up not coming in at all and being basically being black flagged in the end. Um, and uh, Bradl had to do an extra ride through because he came in, stopped the bike. Uh, stood stood in front of his uh, pit garage, which doesn't count as a ride through, which is a little bit strange. I think I, I think I understand the logic because you know you could then you could uh, theoretically do a bike change or you know change a wheel or or otherwise um, work on the bike while uh, while it's actually work because this is supposed to be a punishment rather than an opportunity to to, to help yourself go faster. Um, uh, but it was interesting to see that they were actually relying so much on the. On the dashboard messages, rather than at the start of pit lane, which is where race direction actually holds out a great big sign saying with your race number on and your penalty, and then also um, the pit board as well. Yeah, all around the track. I mean, we're we're obviously not concentrating on racing motorcycles, but as we're going around the circuit, photographing that. We saw very clearly that the marshals were getting the blackboard out, putting Hector Barber's number up, and when they came around, hold them up. And I'm assuming that that didn't happen only at the corner I was at. Those black panels are at every station as the rider goes around. He has plenty of opportunities 
to see his number on a black board as he goes around the circuit, right? And, and he claimed that he couldn't see it because he was looking at his uh, his pit board instead of or uh, his dashboard rather than the um, uh, uh, rather than the the pit board, and there was lots and lots of there was just some really strange garble. It, it, it turned out that it was actually a misconfiguration um, of the, the the team had done something wrong, not got the, uh, the they were not passing the messages through to the dashboard correctly, and so the dashboard was going all a, bit, a little bit mental. Yeah, but the writers are supposed to keep an eye out what the marshals with the flags are doing, right? And if they're holding up a big, a big blackboard with your number on it, it's you, their responsibility to see it, you. It, no, it is, that, that's exactly what Mike Webb told. Uh, uh, my, uh, Neil, uh, Neil and myself went to speak to um, Mike Webb at the end of the race, and he said, "The, I mean, the the, the, the message to the dashboard is a little bit of extra service, um, uh, but th that's not the legal... Uh, that that's not what they what they that's not the legal transmission of the message. If you see what I mean, this it's not the the formal notification is uh, someone from race direction standing at the start of pit lane with a great big board saying ride through and then the rider's number underneath it. And if the rider is not reading that, uh, if they're not reading that, then there then there there really is a problem. It was interesting that this issue should happen here because of the news which we heard earlier. Yeah, I think we heard on Friday or Saturday that um, you know race organizers are proposing to introduce a system where they can send uh, more complex messages to riders' dashboards uh, during a race, um, possibly as an alternative to you know yeah, radios, um, which I think we discussed in one of the previous shows. Um, so you know they're looking at being able to send riders very brief, basic messages um, that may relate to the race, uh, that may relate to the conditions or may relate to the rider's whereabouts on the track. Um, so we're looking at very simple messages that would come up on a come up on a dashboard, um, for example, during a flag to flag race, rather than riders relying on uh, their pit board to be told when they should be coming into pits, they would be receiving a message, you know, you know, through the the back of the track, you know, they would have a box would appear on their on their dashboard. And it seems that uh, donor are quite keen to, you know, introduce a system that would then be broadcast uh, and you know, kind of transmitted to the TV feed, you know. So as you watch the, the race at home on television, you would have the kind of the, the message as the rider receives it, you know, popping up in your TV screen, you know. So it would kind of be a more interactive way, I guess, to, to watch the race like we would have in Formula One, for instance, where they have the radios. You can hear the riders, sorry, the drivers, um, you know, interacting with their, with their team. Yeah, I mean, it does seem very much, well, th it seems to be driven by two different factors. First of all, um, the, again, the TV, because it's great for TV. Obviously, they can sort of see that this message is being sent. Uh, and of course, what would be even better for TV is if the uh, rider then completely ignores the message being sent to him. So we can have three laps of uh, commentators screaming, and he's not taking any different notice of his what does he do why is he not thinking which is what they're paid to do and what, what, what makes great commentary the other factor is um, their I mean the Saxon ring rate obviously you talked about this in the Saxon ring podcast um, but the, the the Saxon ring race people wanting um, if Valentino Rosso and Andrea Dovicioso come in earlier then maybe they win the race um, but they weren't coming in because they weren't looking at their, their pit board the question is if they do get a message or even if they had 
radios, would they still actually take any notice of, at all of the people, of, of what people are telling them? Because you're engaged in a race. And I think as Cal Crutchlow said to us, when you're halfway around the track, I mean, it's all very well being told, you know, box. But if you're going through turn, I don't know, turn seven and there's a massive great big wet patch and you really don't fancy having to go through there on slicks then maybe you're going to ignore it anyway yeah exactly yeah yeah it's worth it's probably worth putting out at this moment um i think it's in very very early discussions um, yeah, just the proposal yeah. at the moment it's just a proposal yeah so i think the race or dorna race organizers have asked the teams what they feel would be you know rele relevant uh, messages or what they think would be feasible to, to kind of send to their to their riders during a race and they i think you know they, they were stressing um danny aldridge's technical director i was kind of saying that they want to want it to be simple it can't be too complicated um um, and they could potentially send two, three, four maximum, he said, messages across a lap, you know. Yeah, at each transponder point, because of yeah. the way in which the transponders the, the transponders now communicate to full duplex, as is known, which basically means they can send and receive messages. So what can happen is the... Um, uh, yeah, there were various, um, I, I think someone, some, one of the Spanish riders called it, or one of the Spanish papers called it the uh, WhatsApp for uh, WhatsApp for <laughs> MotoGP, which yeah, doesn't sound like a good, th good thing at all. I mean, they do actually have five buttons on the left handlebar, so, you know, who knows, I'm, fair with, I'm sure with a... <laughs> They're, 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 One for they're, the willy pigs. There they're, they're <laughs> could be uh, there could be a, uh, a fair bit, but what it means is that uh, especially riders, w w when race direction or in this case a team sent a message, then the message would uh, the, the teams would be able to see that um, uh, that the message had been received. Um, uh, but yeah, it would it would have to be very short. It would have to be sort of box or a gap or or, or something like that, and it would be uh, four times a lap at each particular transponder point. Yeah, and it was interesting. We were speaking to Eugene Lab on Saturday asking him about it and he said that it sounds like a really good idea maybe they should just do it once a lap maybe whenever the riders come past pit lane and maybe instead of on the dashboard they could you know see a board that their mechanics are holding out that could maybe be a good idea you know yeah that's that's <laughs> i'm not sure that moto gp is is ready for something as revolutionary as pit boards but uh, who knows who knows it was but yeah exactly I, it seems it seems to me i got a sense that the opinion was split uh, rossi's in favor i think andrea dovichosa seems to be very much in favor yeah yeah um, which is strange because they they are the two most experienced and uh, intelligent riders as well so they're exactly the kind of riders who you would expect to be able to figure it out themselves yeah exactly but then uh, you you just have riders that think it's just another way that um the teams could potentially in, uh, hamp or interrupt the race you know and, and kind of interrupt that sort of flow that a rider's in it should you know and in my eyes uh you know it should remain just a you know race should just be between a rider and you know the other guys in the track exactly the team gets the bike ready yeah and once the uh, uh, basically once the once the once the light go, light goes out, it's the rider on his bike against uh, against the rest of it. Um, I completely agree. I think um, uh, Mike Webb described it as motorcycle racing is still a, very much a human sport, and mm. that to me is definitely the most appealing aspect of it. Um, um, right. Well, move away from uh, MotoGP onto the smaller classes, and perhaps the most fascinating thing happened actually off the track rather than on the track yeah it was um moto 3 i guess we would have to call him a championship challenger he was only 66 points i think behind the championship leader going into this race weekend uh, romano fanati was 
sensationally suspended by the Sky VR46 team on the eve of the race on Saturday after he qualified 11th. Um, uh, an, an unprecedented move really for a rider that is in a championship battle I mean I know we've had instances you know uh, dotted around the past where riders haven't been allowed to maybe do certain things because you know their team has stepped in but uh, for a rider that's, that's actually engulfed in a, in a championship struggle um, this is this you know this is kind of new territory um, yeah, I, I think John Hopkins was once uh, um, I, I can't remember if he was suspended or, or uh, told not to race or something like that um, yeah. uh, for uh, for one race but again uh, be, before that it was uh, someone said John Kaczynski was sacked by Tech 3 this would have been Tech 3 yeah uh, the, uh, 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 yeah he was sacked by Poncherel this was uh, uh, Ante this would have been in the Antenna Yamaha years or something really it, 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 20 20 it would have been the it would have been in the in the mid 1990s but um, someone said so I had no reason to believe them. but anyway it's the, the, the mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If the, the, this is, this is true, Neil and his uh, and his um, Amsa and his uh, 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 right once read many uh, brain and always completely correct. So it'd be, obviously, it didn't happen, but still, it makes for a great story. Yeah, exactly. Let's say um, it happened. But it did happen with 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 Fanasi to to be. I mean, and it looks like he's been sacked. I mean, this yeah. hasn't been made official yet, but it looks like he's been sacked. Yeah, yeah. There's been kind of rumours going around about who's going to take that Moto3 KTM bike at, over at K, um, over at Brno. Um, and then you would have to say that, okay, let's, uh, let's game over for him with, uh, with, with Sky VR46. And of course, you know, um, Rossi was asked about this on Sunday evening. And I think his final line was that, yeah, we've given up. You know, we've tried many times to, you know, try and bring him back from the pill. But in the end, the, there's no there's no solution, no answer. You went down to talk to Pablo Nieto. What did Nieto say? Well, obviously, he can't really, he couldn't, at that time, that was on Sunday morning, he couldn't quite say, or couldn't go into specifics. But, um, you know, he, he stressed that it was down to behavior. Um, Fanati hadn't been behaving in the, in the right way. Uh, he had received two warnings official warnings from the team um, before Austria and this was the third and I guess this was you know this was uh, a big enough deal that um, it just couldn't be tolerated um, and you know it's kind of not, not silly but as corny as this sounds he was saying that you know um, that you know that that team is there basically to bring up Italian talent and that's not necessarily just about making them get the best results possible it's trying to like nurture them in terms you know in terms of in terms of the people that they are, teach them about about everything, about you know what they have to deal with, and you know some of the conduct. From what we understand, some of the conduct that was going on in that garage wasn't, you know, just isn't how you deal with it. You know, doesn't how you deal with people in any sort of uh, in any sort of profession. Exactly. I mean, there were there were recorded instances of uh, uh, screaming and shouting, and and you know, people getting Fanasi get, becoming very very uh, uh, abusive and aggressive with his team. There are unrecorded uh, and un unverified uh, instances of uh, perhaps even physical scuffles mm. we have no uh, of course this is all completely alleged because we know we don't know that, that this happened and there's a lot of paddock rumour uh, involved but it's generally not, not so good yeah and one of the things that Nieto said was that you know riders when they come to race for this team they have to appreciate this is a great opportunity they have to appreciate that to an extent they're lucky to have this opportunity there are hundreds of teenagers and young racers around the world that would you know lose a finger lose a toe to, to be able to race in that squad and you know reading between the lines from that statement you just get the impression that Fanati was in no way grateful to to what was going on around him he was perhaps 
I don't know. Um, yeah, was, uh, had ideas above his station, I guess you could say. Mm, yeah, I was going to say, from the outside looking in, it would appear as though he has a bit of an attitude problem, and to use a, to, to use the British term, a bit of a Billy Big Bollocks, with the uh, with the, the you know look, look at me kind of attitude. From the outside looking in, it kind of gives that impression, and uh, perhaps it's finally come back to bite him on the ass. Yeah, you'd have to say that. Um, I mean, it, it, really, when you think about it, crazy. Like, he had a Moto2 deal sorted for 2017 to move up with the team on a Calyx. You know, that was going to be, it's always going to be a competitive package. Um, still had a title going for him. Still a possibility of winning the title this year. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's just not, he's not delivered. And that's not the first time we've said that about Romano. No, exactly. I think also the fact that he hasn't delivered because uh, I, I think his first his first two races were a podium and a win. Um, after that, he's shown some absolutely astonishing uh, ability. He's clearly incredibly talented, um, but talent just isn't enough at this level. It's uh, uh, about hard work. It's hmm. about um, it's, it's about dedication. It's about commitment. It's about professionalism. Um, unfortunately, it has made it has made riders very very boring because they spend so much of their time training and. Um, they almost have their personalities trained out of them, sort of cycled <laughs> out of them, just from just sheer physical training. But uh, that's just part of it. It's just if you want to be a world champion, that's what you have to do. And it didn't really feel like Romano Fanati. That was the part which Romano Fanati really understood. Yeah, and before um, I was waiting for to, to interview Pablo on Sunday morning, and when we were waiting there outside the garage, I was chatting to someone from the team, and I kind of put it to this person that it was uh, you know it must be extremely frustrating because we all know how talented he is the results that you mentioned his first two races in Grand Prix show just that he is a sensational talent but um, this person just said you know talent's nothing if you don't turn up on Friday or on Thursday with uh, your mind completely focused and concentrated on the job at hand and that just seems to be uh, the way it's gone for him um, I mean this year uh, even last year you would say with certain men moving up to Moto2 graduate when they did you know um just, they, they, they should have been Fanati's yeah, year. Yeah, they should have been the year. Yeah, exactly. I, you could even say that about last year, you know, with Miller and Alex Marquez moving up and Rins moving up in 2000, the end of 2014. I thought 2015 was his year. Um, but, you know, it's the same old feelings. And it's the same thing. We keep saying it again and again. You know, you, this year, um, he was unlucky in Mugello. I'll give him that. But you look at Aston, you look at Germany. Well, not Germany. You look at Aston and Catalonia. And he was, you know, he got himself into a great place. He was in that leading group. He was... You know, it was there. The race was there for the taking, and he just contrived to not finish on the podium. Yeah, he, you know, he, he just he, he, he managed to, to to not win them. He exactly, really exactly. You know, and you compare that to someone like Brad Binder, who's a very grounded young gentleman who is quite affable and very polite and nice guy. But also, you can see when he's on the track, he's using his head all the time. And uh, yeah, that's that's quite a contrast to, to Romano. Uh, sometimes being sacked can be the making of people because it makes them actually sit down and think about it. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, um, yeah, I think this could actually be potentially the best thing that's ever happened to Fanati. If he went up to Moto2 next year with the same team, you know, maybe that's a sign that, okay, what I've been doing, the way I've been acting is, is how I go about my business. Um, being, you know, I'm, going, I'm guessing he's, going to, he's been getting a lot of bad press and some of the stories that have emerged today in the Italian and Spanish press have not shone a pretty light on him at all um, and he's basically you know to have you know one, Valentino Rossi one of the biggest names in the paddock you know kind of just saying that I've given up on you you know I've tried my best but you know that's it I mean he's going to have to do a lot of soul searching 
And he's going to have to like kind of look at, uh, you know, what has gone wrong and where, you know, it's so, yeah, he's going to come back. He's going to have a point to prove. He's going to be somewhere where he probably knows that a certain type of behavior won't be tolerated. I'm sure anyone that's taken him into their team will, you know, may have a contract that, that will stipulate, okay, you know, there are clauses here that you have to adhere to. I know in other sports, they have these kind of performance-based clauses. Um, so, yeah, I think go somewhere else, be forced to knuckle down, take a lot of flack, look in the mirror and, you know, who knows what uh, what kind of guy the talent's there. Um, and, yeah. if, you know, if he can just find a way to, to funnel this, to challenge it in a, in a positive way. Yeah, I mean the most interesting, uh, the most interesting rumor which I heard was that uh, Fanasi was being linked to the IO team, and if there is one manager inside MotoGP who can actually ma who can actually manage that kind of talent, he did he, he did it with uh, he did it with Miller, yeah. did it with Vinales. Oh, yeah. um, uh, he's just he's very very good at taking wayward young men and kicking them into shape um, and that I, I think that is very much uh, I think that's very much the um, um, it, it would be if he was given that opportunity that would be absolutely the best opportunity he could get in the he could get in in moto well in the Grand Prix paddock yeah. uh, the question is whether he would actually understand just how valuable that, that opportunity that opportunity is and I think there's I mean I've heard this about more than just Fanati, I've heard this about other young riders as well. They don't really understand or appreciate the opportunity they are being given because they've come up, you know, they've won lots and lots. They've been very, they've been very successful. Um, they've managed to, you know, I mean, when you come up, generally when you arrive in the Grand Prix paddock, it means that you dominated your regional championship, you've <clears> often dominated your national championship, and then you arrive in the Grand Prix paddock and you think, hey, I'm a great racer, I beat all these I beat all these kids, it was really, really easy. And then you find you're, you know, up against 30 people who are at, at the same level and you find that the, the talent you have is just not enough anymore. It's about, you, you need the, the complete package. You especially need the mental package and the mental package, I think, especially with Romano Fanati has been, what's what's been missing mm, exactly yeah and i guess we could look back at uh at maverick vinales when he was in um one of his um championship challenging years in moto three uh, the first year in 2012 actually when he was fighting with cortese and he showed up at sepang and you know he obviously realized that his bike wasn't up to the task of uh, of beating cortese's ktm he was on an ftr honda it i was think on an ftr honda yeah. and th that year the honda engine was uh but i think it was straight out of a moped yeah it was um it yeah. really was uh, very slow indeed uh, the honda were complaining that um uh that ktm were cheating by taking the class seriously sure yeah um uh, and actually building a race bike um Honda they, complaining they, that they're getting beat That's yeah, strange. It, yeah. It, well they didn't get beat the next year um the the the, the ftr handled brilliantly but the but the engine just wasn't up to it and i think maverick and maverick was doing just some amazing i remember the race at mategi what he did on the ftr honda was just just absolutely astonishing but he had no business being where he had sure. on that and he just walked away from the team saying you know Sold this. Yeah, sure. And we, we've seen, you know, Mavericks come back and, you know, has, you know, won the championship the next year, went up to Moto2 and now he's, you know, one of the top names and he has that steely focus. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the kind of difference is that Finales was 17, I think, when he made that decision. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't the right decision to make. And, you know, I think Finati's 20 at the moment and I'm not saying that I was the wisest person in the world when I was 20 years old, but I was, but a, it, good, it, I was a good deal more intelligent than I was when I was 17. So you would expect him to know 
they know better, especially if he's been given um, if he's been given warnings on on two occasions before. Yeah, exactly. I think anyone who knew me when I was either seventeen or twenty must have a very have a have a good laugh at uh, me complaining of the maturity of of, of riders of seventeen and twenty, <laughs> because uh, I barely knew which way anything went despite the absence of motor of, uh, of romano finati we had uh, a motor three and a motor two races and we had some very mature winners when we come back from the break we'll be talking about that david emmett here just a quick reminder if you're listening to this show on itunes please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show Thanks a lot. Bye. Right. Well, um, welcome back. Let's take a look at the Moto3, the Moto2 races. Moto2, uh, Moto2 has been improving. We've actually started to having a little bit of a little bit of racing. I mean, uh, you wouldn't think so when you just look at the final result, but the actual race itself was was pretty good. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. My only reservation is that, you know, we spent pretty much all of the first half of the season building this up to be the championship of the year. Three guys locking horns every weekend and taking it all the way to, to Valencia. And Johan Zarco was making a bit of a mockery of us. Yeah, it, it, what Johan Zarco has been has done, especially the last sort of, what, four or five, five. races, yeah, it's just been absolutely astonishing. He's He really does look... Um, uh, just a step above uh, uh, above the rest of them. Uh, again, Alex Rintz had a good race, uh, came through from quite a long way back to uh, uh, to finish third. But, but, but that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the thing with Rintz, though, isn't it? You know, it's it's frustrating because he has that speed, and you you would think that if he could have got away at the start, it's he gets that speed kind of mid race, and by then Zarko's up the road and he's playing yeah. catch up, and it's just you know he was fortunate to get that third place as well because had Morbidelli not buffed up. Uh, Duffed up, sorry, uh, Luti, uh, the final kind of half of the last lap, he would have been fourth, you know. Um, so, yeah, again, another race where Rins just didn't quite have that uh, yeah, that really, little special something. Exactly. Rinch really doesn't seem to get it together. Unfortunately, Sam Lowe's crashed again. Yeah. Um, this is, again, Lowe's just seems to be pushing a little bit too hard. Yeah, Lowe's was in a, you know, he was in a difficult situation because Zarco, I think pretty much all the Moto2 teams came to test at the, the Red Bull Ring in July. Lowe's was one of the, te- the, one of the, you know, one of the few that wasn't able to come. Um, and I think that I'm not sure the, the full story of that, but um, but yeah, he seemed pretty disappointed that he wasn't allowed to test there. But it was him and forward, I think Nakagami as well was another one. And he said that he just, you know, he did start to feel a bit of pressure this weekend. You know, he's 30 points behind. Zarko was strong all weekend, and he kind of knew that he had to really do something to, um, you know, to counteract that. Um, he struggled the whole weekend in, in sector one and two. You know, he just he didn't know what was going on. And he said this was one of the weekends where not having data with the Calyx from last year really, you know, hurt him. And also not having a teammate because he just wasn't able to compare. He, he knew he was going wrong, but he didn't know what exactly it was he was doing that it wasn't quite right. Um, he, you know, was taking positives from the fact that he was really quick in the third and fourth sector. Um, but, you know, his his tactic was basically, right, push like absolute crazy in those in those two sectors where I'm strong. And hopefully the deficit in the first two won't be as strong, won't be, you know, won't be as big. And yeah. with a full tank going in there, I think early on in the race, that just, you know, that, that kind of worked against them in the end. Yeah, I, I think also it does, beca- especially you get into a situation where it becomes very, very difficult to actually uh, maintain focus. 
uh, to stay focused, to stay um, uh, to stay calm in the face of adversity. And uh, they, the, I think, the, basically the pressure got onto uh, got to Sam, tried to push a little bit too hard, and ended up paying paying a, a very big price. And he's just dug himself a much uh, a much bigger hole, and it really looks like it's going to be between. Uh, Zarko and Rince now, and the form Zarko is in at the moment, it's it's hard to, to it's yeah. hard to bet against it. You'd only be putting your money on one man, yeah, exactly. You know, it's just it's frustrating for those because any time that he wasn't quite at the absolute sharp end at the start of this year, he was always saying like, "Yeah, but I finished. I came home. I was able to. I was able to bring it home." The last, you know, Sam Lozo last year would have chucked it away trying yeah. to do something silly. In the last two races, he's just uh, it's just gone against them and. Yeah, you could see he was, you know, at one point in, our, in the debrief after the race, he, he did concede the title. Well, not quite concede it, but say it was going to be extraordinarily difficult. Then he kind of changed his tune when he started thinking about Bruneau and, you know, the fact that it could be a potential good result there. Yeah, Bruneau, but, Silverstone, there's some there, there, there's some good good tracks coming up and yeah, then, and then yeah. you start to... But, but then I, I think I've been in in debriefs with, with uh, Sam before, with Sam Lowe's before, and Sam Lowe starts... Um, you come in and he's a little bit down, but then you see himself talking himself up again, turning it around. It's, it's almost like a visible process yeah. of how the motorcycle racer's mind works. This was awful. Uh, put it behind us, move forward, start thinking about stuff, you know, getting psyching yourself up, getting yourself ready for the next race. Yeah. Because, I mean, that, that kind of mental resilience is, is, is quite remarkable. And, Samuelos is going to need an awful lot of it um, yeah. uh, to, if he's to turn it around. It was quite interesting because uh, Alex Lowe's was obviously at, uh, in Austria. He's enjoying, um, you know, quite a quite a considerable break in the World Ch uh, Superbike Championship at the moment. And he was in Suzuka, won the eight hours there recently. But um, he was sitting next to Sam whenever Sam was giving his debrief and, you know, occasionally interjecting whenever Sam was saying something. He was almost like, you know, yeah, but remember you were strong in this corner. Remember how strong you were there. You were one of the fastest guys through here. And then you could see Sam starting to lift his, you know, his shoulders up and think, okay, well, you know, I guess, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was strong here and I was one of the fastest guys here. So, um, you know, having that support, I think uh, Alex was saying that he's going to be traveling with Sam to Brno as well. Um, and having someone like, you know, that, of that standing and that ability uh, there in your corner, you know, motivating you and helping you, you know, let's hope it can, uh, it can pay, pay off in, uh, in Bruno. Um, Moto3, fantastic race. Great race. Yeah, fantastic race. And, you know, confirmation of, you know, great talent that Juan Mir is. Um, you know, we've talked endlessly about the rookies this year, how strong they are. A lot of really, really fast kids. I would say maybe natural talent alone, Juan Mir might be the strongest, just basing that off, like, um, of his performances in the FIM Junior Championship last year. Exceptionally fast kid. Crashes a lot. A bit inconsistent. Um, but, yeah, pole position. And, uh, you know, I really didn't expect him in that last, um, I think, in the there was a five-man group that included Bastianini, uh, Brad Binder, and Fabio Quadraro. And I really didn't expect Mir to beat all of those guys. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really a, a very very mature and impressive uh, performance. Um, he was really strong. He you know he just kept it together. Uh, Binder was doing everything to win that race. I mean, he was almost you know he was racing it despite the fact that he's got a massive lead in the championship. No way was he sitting there defending his championship. He was there um, uh, balls out for, uh, for for the win. And um, uh, Juan Mir really held it together went uh, um went through the corner just well i was impressed <laughs> <laughs>
put it that way. What I was more impressed with was his comment actually after the race yeah. when he said, "What was the what, what, what was the difference?" You know, when he was sort of saying because he he said in the press conference, "Yeah, well, you know, I went away over the summer break and came away and uh, and worked on my attitude." So I asked, "You know, what exactly did you did you were you working on? Did you change?" And he said, "Well, you know, you, I come through from from uh, from the from the junior championship where you're used to winning every weekend. You know, you're either winning or podium. You is well, you know, win it or bin it, win or crash is what he said basically." Um, then you come to the World Championship and you're 16th. And that is really, really painful. What we were talking about with, with, with Fanata, you know, you've got this talent, you come up, all of a sudden you're up against people with the same talent and it's really easy to get down on yourself sure. because uh, it, it's, yeah, you, you're getting your ass handed to you every uh, every weekend. And you're actually having to dig into yourself and find that strength. Uh, and Juan Mir really showed he could do that this weekend yeah that's what he said it was about finding that motivation again because I guess whenever you're a kid of of his talents seeing your name next to 15th on the on the timesheets that's probably going to deflate you a little bit and get you a little bit down um, and he said it was just about going away putting that you know the back of his mind and you know not letting them get too hard on themselves, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know? Well, racing is a strange business anyway, because the people the people are doing this for uh, a few fleeting seconds of absolute ecstasy. They spend um, all year and uh, you know the two weeks before a race, uh, a race, absolutely punishing themselves to make themselves uh, as strong as possible. Then they risk their lives uh, doing twenty. What is it? Twenty five, twenty six laps. A bit like uh, yourself, David. Uh, <laughs> All, working all year for a few seconds of ecstasy. <laughs> That's right. Well, the, 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 the pills don't kick in as quickly as they used to. Anyway, but yeah, Juan Mir, absolutely fantastic performance. Brad Binder, again, really sensitive, just really, really great. Uh, and surprising to see uh, Fabio Quattararo, who's had an absolutely dismal first mm. half of the, uh, of the year. Yeah, I think we've heard that he's left his manager, um, the kind of guy that he's been pretty much with, throughout his career yeah. um also a, a a manager again who uh, was known for making some rather peculiar decisions in the past yeah you have to question that decision to leave um the australia galicia set up last year i mean oh, yeah it's just fabio you know hasn't really been able to get on with the ktm going into that leopard team where there's three moto two rider or three moto three riders and you know they're kind of venturing into moto two territory as well you know, it just doesn't seem like it's a setup which is, you know, specifically designed around him. Whereas back in, uh, you know, Australia Galicia setup with with Al oh, yeah, looking was over then, his shoulder, he was their number one rider. He was their golden boy, you know. Yeah. Um, so that that was a very strange decision uh, to leave them in the first place. And um, you know, yeah, Fabio, for my money, is the most talented kid in that class. Um, but he, he has to put it. But together. he has to put it together. Sure, sure, exactly. Um, so it was great to see him back up there. Great to see Bastia as well. Um, yeah. You know, Bastia showed some good form in in, in Germany. He was in the run at Aston as well. Um, ahead of what we hear is, you know, he's going to be moving across the Australia Galicia squad for next year um, to take over a spot that will be vacated by Jorge Navarro. Yeah. Um, which is the move actually he wanted to make last year. Exactly, yeah. but he was kept but to he was the kept, Cresini team. He was kept to the contract to the Cresini team, but he's finally showing, you know, what a you know what a strong rider he is. And really, you know, those guys, they should be in the championship running. You know, we've, you know we saw on, on, on Sunday that Navarro crashed out while riding really well actually yeah I mean Navarro actually had a fantastic I was going to yeah. bring up uh, Navarro he had an absolutely fantastic race right up until the moment when he crashed and didn't have such a fantastic race sure. but he came he came through from a from a very long way uh, back on the grid and still still made up you know made up a lot of places and then yeah. uh, sadly threw it away sure uh, Finati obviously didn't race and then Banyaya the Mahindra was never going to be suited to this uh, the setup so he had the you know third 
second, third, and fourth guys in the championship just nowhere, and Binder up at the front. Um, you know, so it's basically Binder. Pardon me. I think has about sixty-seven points advantage now. And you so have, have they? Uh, I mean, have they already made the little the little diamond uh, with his <laughs> name on it uh, on it for the uh, for, for the Moto Three Championship? I'd say so. Yeah, I'd say so. Definitely. Yeah, the you know you can't see Brad's such a level-headed guy that you can't really see him lose in focus. Um, you know, maybe in the way that Danny Kent in some instances yeah. last year did. But then again, I mean, uh, it, it's a lot easier for 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 Brad because he knows what he's going to be doing next year. It hasn't been True. confirmed yet, yep. but he's going to be. Uh, Pat, it might have been confirmed by the time we've uh, actually uh, finished this podcast. Um, uh, but next year he's going to Moto Two with him, but with the uh, with the IO uh, with the IO uh, structure, uh, still waiting for a confirmation mm. of the contract. Um, that's nice that he didn't have what Danny Kent had last year, which sure. is you know, am I going to go to Moto GP? Uh, am I going to go to Moto Two? What are we going to do? Um, so yeah, those distractions didn't have any of those distractions. He can just get on with winning the championship. Yeah, exactly. He's got the contract on the table, and he was saying there's one or two little small things that they need to iron out. But you know, it's, that's pretty much certain that he'll be partnering Miguel Oliveira in. Uh, uh, Iowa's Moto2 team and he'll be taking over Massimo Branchini Johan Zarco's current crew chief a guy that Brad also worked with last year and he's worked with names like Casey Stoner in the past a real top level technician um, so yeah uh, on the, the WP suspension yeah, WP sorry, sorry, WP chassis. I should yeah, say. WP yeah. suspension and WP chassis, sure. which is basically the KTM, uh, the, the chassis being built by KTM. KTM presented their MotoGP bike um, uh, next year. Obviously, Paul and uh, Paul and Bradley will be on that. Um, but in the future, that could be a future path for 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 ride, a rider like Brad Binder, sure. because certainly that's what Stefan Pira was saying mm. and Pitt Byra was saying at the at the presentation. What we want to do is put together a path for ride to bring young riders through. You don't want to, you know, put them on a Moto3 bike, take them into up to Moto2 and then sort of hand them over to Honda or Yamaha. It would be yeah. nice to actually have them all the way through. Yeah, and Paddock rumours suggest that uh, Binder will be signed up to a long-term deal. This isn't just two years in Moto2. This could be a deal that eventually takes them all the way through to MotoGP. <laughs> Well, Miguel Oliveira, I think, was also mentioned with yeah. uh, uh, along yeah. that. So, which is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that, bringing KTM riders up, one of the things I thought was interesting about the Moto Three race was that the two Red Bull rookies from last season, Bo Ben Snyder and Fabio Giannantonio, finished seventh and eighth on yeah. Sunday. I was really impressed with the ride from those two guys who are having kind of a race within the race. Those two are, are often battling for the top Red Bull rookie in the Moto3 race. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's been interesting seeing uh, uh, DJ Antonio has done really well right from the start of the season. Ben Snyder has um, got off to a bit of a rough start, but uh, the past two or three races, he's really been stringing it together. And again, he's really coming through. He's doing it. I mean, I've, whenever I've talked to um, uh, Barry Vaynerman, who's the Dutch, uh, basically the, the of the Dutch Federation uh, uh, about Ben Snyder he says you know this is where this is where w what he's supposed to be doing the, the the plan is that to be getting you know regular top tens um, uh, and, and especially in the second half of the season um, uh, later towards the end of the season maybe looking at top fives um, so yeah I mean it's good but again it's just it's just indica indicative of the quality of the of the rookies in, in in the class at the moment absolutely yeah for sure yeah yeah I remember speaking to a Dutch journalist sorry just to, on the topic of Ben Schneider the start of this year uh, and we're saying, you know, at, at, you know, if you took Mickey van der Mark at this age, at, at 17, I think Ben Schneider is, Ben Schneider is at a much higher level than van der Mark was at that age. And, you know, we're talking about Mickey as a potential MotoGP rider in the coming years or World Superbike, you know, potential champion. So, you know, the talent is, is certainly there. Yeah, and Ben Schneider is, ben Schneider is 
calm, very mature. Uh, I've only spoken to him a couple of times, but he's really, really, um, you know, there's no pretension, there's no uh, no pretense, no no delusions of grandeur. Mm. He's very settled and grounded uh, young man, always there with his, with his dad. The, the whole thing looks... It looks like he's got a, things to control and, and he's in potential. So yeah, trains with but, uh, with Vandermark and, and Wilco Zielenberg, yeah. Actually, I've heard as well. You know, yeah, exactly. having someone like Wilco, you know, training with you and looking over your shoulder, telling you where to do or you know what to do and maybe where you went wrong in a race. I mean, that is that is valuable yeah. sort of insight to have. Yeah, ex extremely valuable. Right. Well, I think that just about covers the loss of it. We're all <laughs> off. First of all, we're we're all off for a uh, for a beer and a, and, a, and a bite to eat, and then we're all off to Bordeaux. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Scott. It was my very great pleasure. And I just want to say you look fantastic in that dirndl. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Neil. Thank you very much, David. And thank you, Tony. Thank you very much, David. Right, well, I um, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, remember to uh, follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. Uh, remember to follow us on Facebook, um, uh, facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And there's another one, but I can't remember which one it is. Oh, yeah, iTunes. If you enjoy this, do please go to iTunes, give us a rating and give us a review and tell us that we suck. Thank you very much. And I hope you'll listen to the next one. Bye. Um, I shall do some. Well, actually, Jensen, just use some of the ones which I did for you the other week. Just slap them in there. We'll be. Uh, we'll it's be fine. Nice recording one, doesn't yeah, it? Jensen, yeah, that's right, Jensen. It's got a, a sweet, sweet voice. Yeah. Sweet. Sweet. Just get Jensen right. to slide yeah. it in. Jeez, it's and just tailor made for the radio. Slap no, it in. No, I'm just thinking about Jensen talking. <laughs> Go and fetch me some ice from the fucking <laughs> from the, the mini bar we just got, <laughs> so I can pour it down right, my trousers. Right, <laughs> Jump starts messages and then we'll do my two by three. Oh, Fanati, uh, yeah, exactly. Fanati, Fanati, Romano, Fanati. Um, right. <laughs>